So today I want to get into this, did Jesus really say that? And I'll see how far I get. I don't know how far we'll get, um, but it should be pretty fun. But this is part two. And uh, last week we kind of talked about, uh, uh, this was the prequel to the Sermon on the Mount. And that's, we started looking through chapter four, because chapter five to seven is like the biggie sermon, the one that everybody points to. And I thought, okay, that's nice. I read half that stuff, and I think, fine, what's the big deal? But do you know what's happened? Some of us have read these verses years ago, over and over. And we're on to different sections to read, and we're excited about them. But to go back and reread a text from a new perspective, but you don't know you have a new perspective yet? It's like, oh my goodness, I never saw that before. I didn't catch, my goodness, that just unpacked like I never expected. And that's what the scriptures seem to keep doing. And that's what, when Russ was sharing those scriptures this morning, um, he, it was a, to me, it was a contrast of my old way of thinking, and nobody pointed out the second part of those verses. Look how bad you are, and oh yeah, you're a lowly sinner, all the sin, wages of sinners' death, oh yeah, I'm oh, forgiving God. And you can do that. But then it says, but you've been saved. But you've been forgiven. But Jesus did all this. So, yeah, but the Bible plainly says, and you only do that, and then you never share the, the full glory, the full joy, the full good news. There's more. It's like a commercial. But wait, there's more. Henry Nouwen, praying for God's mercy. And some folks here at Hope Fellowship need this prayer today. I'm thinking of a few folks right now. But this is a powerful one. Praying for God's mercy. There's probably no prayer in the history of Christianity that has been prayed so frequently and intimately as the prayer, Lord have mercy. Sometimes it's prayed with a scream. Sometimes it's prayed with a cry. Sometimes it's prayed from grief. The most common prayer, Lord, have mercy. This cry for mercy is possible only when we are willing to confess that somehow, somewhere, our lives have something to do with our losses. We ourselves have something to do with our losses. Crying for mercy is a recognition that blaming God, the world, or others for our losses does not do full justice to the truth of who we are. At the moment, we are willing to take responsibility, even for the pain we didn't cause directly. Blaming is converted into an acknowledgement of our own role in human brokenness. The prayer for God's mercy comes from a heart that knows that this human brokenness is not a fatal condition of which we have become the sad victims, but the bitter fruit of the human choice to say no to love. This is deep. I know you have these phrases out there, you know, stuff happens, and... You see bumper stickers like that? Pain happens. Bad things happen. But somehow we've been taught in the Christian world 
that's cause and effect. We've been led to believe that, you know, well, if I'm good, then God will bless me. If I'm bad, oh, see, I've done something wrong. My upbringing, I, I knew that if I had a flat tire, it means I didn't tithe for the last couple of weeks and God's going to get his money. It goes to the mechanic, but... <laughs> that's, that's the depth of when I'm good, God blesses. When I'm bad, God curses. Or bad circumstances happen, or I lose my job, or this, like we, bl- we have this duality that we were not created for. We're not called to live out of that duality to try to assess what God's doing in our lives. We're called to focus on the tree of life, not the tree of right and wrong. Big difference. When we live from the tree of life, we let the life of Christ flow through us. We abide, just like Jesus abided in the Father, listening for his voice. Some of us are too busy to hear that voice. And we sometimes make bad decisions. But even in those bad decisions, grace is there. We cannot forget that. So some things made me pause and ponder this week. Just thoughts, memes that caught my attention. And this week, I've dealt with loss again. And this grief one really hit me. Grief is the reminder that love was present. And that even if it's no longer in its original form, that love still exists. I've not heard it like that before. I thought, that was a really well-phrased thought of how we fondly remember those we've lost. This next one, I like this. Many things in your life matter, but, the only, but only one thing matters absolutely. It is finding the essence of who you are. This is Eckhart Tolle who's not a Christian by any means, but he's one who thinks of much deeper. And having him there with Desmond is pretty wild. But the phrase caught my attention, because we've been saying this here too at Hope Fellowship. It's about knowing who you are, and I would tag on in Christ. Do you know your identity, your true spiritual identity, the core and essence of who you are? And if this is a message being given to the world, it's a reflection of some truth. And I believe Jesus is that truth. I just thought it was a neat bridge from a secular, if you want to call it that, because we, again, there's the duality, secular and Christian. Well, that too is an illusion. There's no such thing as secular and Christian. We think there is, and we've got PowerPoints to prove it. But that too is an illusion. Everything is one. Everything's connected. More than we want to admit. I love this one. Once a man was asked, what did you gain by regularly praying to God? The man replied, nothing. But let me tell you what I lost. Anger, greed, insecurity, and fear. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is not gaining, but losing, which ultimately is the gain. We've, people have asked, what about prayer? You don't talk about prayer much. Prayer is for you. It really is for your benefit. And there is something about praying as a group too. I don't understand it all. But this really was a pretty cool thought that caught my attention, made me pause and ponder. I love this one too. You would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, says Aslan in one of the stories. I have a strong, growing belief that Christ 
and his truth is already in us. So when we see truth or hear truth, we know it's true, not because somebody said it, because spirit to spirit, there's a, there's a confirmation of that somehow. I believe people can't say the prayer without Christ already having been present to tell them, Psst, I'm in here. That's why Paul said uh, it pleased God that he would reveal Christ in me, not to me. There's something going on that we're not told about. It happens from the inside out. And I, just, I thought that was really cool. Ooh, 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 ooh. Being biblical is worthless if we aren't being Christ-like. To be Christ-like is to love your neighbor as yourself. To be biblical is to quote verses and align with our personal agendas and contextualize scripture according to our own opinions. Too many Christians are being biblical without being Christ-like. So boy, do we ever need to hear that. Jeff Jules writes, the faithfulness of Christ is the cause of our salvation. Our faith is the result of it. And that ties into what Russ was saying. This is beautiful. Again, pause and ponder. There's so many layers of what about this, what about that? But that's okay. The Holy Spirit's the one who answers all those. Oh, and obviously for today. If Judas got to take communion, everyone gets to take communion. <laughs> I love that. All right. I love this Native American proverb. Everything on earth is borrowed. There is no mine or yours. There's only ours. Even time is borrowed. We kill over a plot of land that belongs only to our mother earth. All you have is what you came with and what you will leave with, your spirit. I like that. Almost done. No, this is the last one. This is deeper, so brace yourself. The spirit rests on the sun. The sun rests in the bosom of the father and the creation enters their rest with us. Invited by the one who is gentle and humble at heart of heart. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Creation is God's resting place. And there are some today who are going through some pretty tough stuff right now. And the Trinity is one with you, resting in you, modeling what rest looks like. Sometimes it can look like inactivity, but it can also look like surrender, yielding up all your outcomes that you want to see happen and surrendering those and experience the peace of Christ when you realize it's out of my hands anyway. It's been a, a week of pause and pondering for sure. But let's continue to last week's. Did Jesus really say that? Finding hope in some tough teachings. And in the Sermon on the Mount and through, there are some tough phrases and sayings that need unpacking. We're not going to unpack them all because that'd be a really long sermon series. And you know me by now. I don't even go so far and lose interest. Look, a squirrel. And I got to move on to another one. Like, sorry, it's the way it is. Um, Matthew 4. Continued from last week, 4, verse 18 to 22, the first disciple. So this is the prequel to the Sermon on the Mount, all right? One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. 
Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. Really? Just keep fishing. Don't look. Just throw the net over. That was weird. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm talking to you. Don't listen. Pretend you can't hear him. Like, if somebody says that to you, you'd do the same, wouldn't you? Like, think of the practical way that this could have happened. You got to see it that way. And then who are these guys? They're young guys. Gesundheit, Gesundheit. Yes. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I'll show you how to, be, how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. What? That is not how I envisioned that. Yeah, I hate this job too. Yeah, okay, let's go. No, what, what, what was their lens that they would leave the nets? They probably put the nets back in the boat and they probably put it on shore so the thing wasn't all floaty. I don't know. But then, a little farther up the shore, he saw two brothers, two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee repairing their nets and called them to come too. Oh my goodness, seriously? They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Bye, Dad, gotta go. That's awkward too. Zebedee says, wait, wait. Do you know him? No, but we're going to follow him. What? Like, this is irrational stuff. And then who told Jesus? Here's what we've learned about Jesus. If you look carefully through the Gospels at the character of Jesus, how he functioned, how he taught, and how he spoke, he always said, it's not me speaking. The Father told me. I speak only what my father has told me. Well, when did he tell him? I think often it's right in the moment, spirit to spirit. But I also know Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. Spent a lot of time with his heavenly father. He must have heard Jesus, God say, call them. I've got their hearts ready. Call them. So what we see is irrational. God's doing something there. He's prepared hearts or they wouldn't have left because who does that? Something was triggered in advance, I believe. This is just my opinion. But I don't think it's some cold, boring writing and reading it through like a ritual reading of Scripture. I can't handle that. I want to understand the story more. And I think there's more going on behind the scenes than what we're told. Then the crowds follow. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. So, from what we're reading, there's only four guys. I don't know. There's more that comes. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're parallel stories, the same story, same period of time, written from different lenses. Some details are omitted, some are different, and that's okay. It doesn't change the truth of what's happened. But here he traveled through the whole region. He taught in synagogues. How did he get the right to teach in a synagogue? That's a good question. I don't know. He did the teaching, and there's a lot of synagogues. So he went from church to church, so to speak, and shared and people listened because he had a message they had not heard or inside them truth 
recognize truth and <gasps> I need more of this. It's like, oh my goodness, it's real oxygen. It's not farm air. This is like real air. <gasps> wow, I need more. And maybe that's what Jesus was, was the breath of fresh air flooding through carefully, going through Jerusalem and Galilee. And people wanted more of that. And word spread. And then he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And the people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. I find it interesting that this word demon-possessed is now being translated or understood as mentally ill, not so much an actual demon. And yet, there's, what is that theology of real demons and such? I'm not sure, because I now have a larger menu than what I had in my church growing up. I don't have to look behind a tree to see if there's a demon there hiding in the corner like Frank Peretti's Present Darkness. Remember those where you're taught to, ooh, it could be a demon in, in those thrift store clothes. I don't know. Like all that overthinking. Seriously, that, you'd be surprised how people use fear. And yet here, something happens. It doesn't say he healed some of them. It says he healed them all. What did he do? Where did he go? Did he go to a synagogue and say, please come to me and I'll heal you? He went there. He went out. And as news spread then, people started bringing him sick people from further and further away. Word spread fast because they've never seen anything like it. This isn't about the location of where to do healing. So I'm still struggling with some of the faith healers that they, some of the folks that are in that camp love them dearly, but they have these phrases. They take it from the sick person and they say, you're healed, you're already healed. But what they fail to do, and please hear me, if you're part of that group, you listen carefully. You got to communicate the bridge of how you arrived there instead of just some hokey pokey, just blind, whatever. Oh, you'll catch on. Oh, I'm not going to catch on. Help me understand it. All right? Be careful how you make people assume because then you set yourself up to be one who knows more than all others and people have to come to you for more teaching. But why aren't they running over to the hospitals and healing those in the hospital? Just like at the, that uh, pool of Bethsaida. It was filled with sick people. Jesus went there. He ended up finding one man. That's who he was after, one man at that time. But he healed wherever he went. Why? Because Jesus was attracted to brokenness and our church world seems to be repelled by it. We don't want them in our group. We don't want them who haven't got their lives figured out connected to us because it's messy. That means we have to slow down and take time to get to know people. I want to be more like Jesus. We're not doing it right. We We don't know what that is. But I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to be working in all of us, teaching us, softening our hearts and We're learning as we go. All of us are. That's what I like about this church. Haven't figured it out. Then, large crowds followed him wherever he went. 
people from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from the east of the Jordan River. He was a magnet, not just because he healed, but he offered hope. And they knew it was true. Something in them knew. It's pretty cool. I like that. Then the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna, I'm going to come back to this next week, but I want to rip through this a little bit because it's really important. Are you okay with five more minutes? Yes. Okay, good. Are you okay? Okay, good. See, I'm waiting for that buzzer. You know how they have an American Idol? Anyway, all right. One day when he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him. So he understood that if you're on a mountainside, people can hear you better. Like, he's smart, figuring this out. I don't know how the word got out. I don't know if they had repeaters, you know, throughout the crowd, I'm not sure. But he began to teach them. It should be noted that in Matthew 5 to 7, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, is the Messianic Torah, law or teaching, and the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. This is the launch of it. Jesus begins with giving his followers a superior way to live than the Ten Commandments of Moses. He's taking the law and upping it. He's showing the impossibility of the law and upping the ante. It is a superior version of all that God expects and provides and provides and provides for those who yield to him. I love this. Of all that God expects and provides. If God has an expectation of you, he also provides the means. You got to remember that. It's It's all in you already. Jesus gives us more than laws. He gives us promises of power to fulfill all that he asks of us. The emphasis is not on outward. If Jesus is going to inspire you to do a good thing, he's going to give you the power to do it, and he's the result of all things. He doesn't need our help. In our church system, we try to help God out by creating programs. If we do this, this will be the actual result. So the program is the result. Holy Spirit's got nothing to do with it half the time. That's sad. And the fruit you don't see for years sometimes because churches grow because of programs. And that's, that, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something fundamentally different here. Jesus is the source of all that wisdom and the power. So what's the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount encourages us to love our enemies as ourselves and to be gentle with one another. This is a tough one. We're not gentle with one another. I'm not gentle with one another all the time. And I'm still learning. Uh, Slowly, but I'm learning. I haven't got it figured out, but I'm learning. It's giving me a lot of opportunities to learn too. We're not looking for fault and criticism in one another, but attending to our own sins and shortcomings first. Looking inward. I love that. So, you're going to hear this word blessed. My wife and I's favorite word. Really. It's like people say, bless you. Blessed. Blessed day. It's like, ah. Just always said by corny people. It just drove me nuts. No offense if somebody likes to use that word. That's fine. I'm learning, right? But this was interesting that now I got to deal with the word. What does it mean? 
Blessed are they. The Aramaic word, by the way, this is from the notes in the Passion Translation, which I love that translation. Also, read this in the First Nations Translation. Oh my goodness. It's going to blow your socks off because it says it so differently. It comes alive. It's not a boring message anymore. Blessed are they. And the Aramaic word for tuwaihon means enriched, happy, fortunate, delighted, blissful, content, blessed. That helps me accept that word again. It helps me reshape how to receive that word blessed. It doesn't have to be a Christianese phrase that drives me nuts and causes weird tingles, but it can be a, okay, here, I'm going to go deeper. I want to know what this word means. And when somebody says blessed, I want a better definition in my head so I'm not turned off by that anymore to make me more gentle. Hmm. The English word blessed can indeed fit here, but tuwehon implies more. Great happiness, prosperity, abundant goodness, and delight. The word bliss captures all of this meaning. So when we pray a prayer of blessing or want to bless somebody, we're wishing this through the Holy Spirit on them, if you want to use that as a loose way to do it. Wishing isn't even the right word. But it's the Holy Spirit, will you bless their socks off? Give them delightful bliss and contentment, happiness, enrichment. Because that's what we'd like to experience and feel. All of us do. Just, I am glad that I got to, I was forced to look at this word again. I don't know if it turned anybody else off. Maybe I was just, I'm the only one in the room. That's fine, it was for me. Tuayun means to have a captivity, to enjoy union and communion with God. That's the part that got me. It's not just blessed that you oh, have a happy life. This is a blessing that you're going to experience union and common union, communion with one another and with the Trinity. Now this suddenly is getting deeper. Now it's okay. I can bless somebody and know there's a depth to it that I have no clue about. And the Holy Spirit just does what has to be done. Because the meaning of the word goes beyond merely being blessed. See? This translation uses different phrases for each of the Beatitudes. Verses 3 to 10 are presented with third person pronouns. However, it's not abstract truth but spoken directly to Jesus' disciples. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, poor in spirit. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, sure. This is why this translation is in the second person. The implication of this verse is that the poor in spirit have only one remedy, and that is trusting in God. This total reliance upon God is the doorway to, into the kingdom realm. It's good news. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. 
God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, go back and reread all that, which we won't, um, and use that word blessed, blessed, and have the definition of blessed beside that. Man, it, it, it becomes 3D all of a sudden. Do you know how, how you see these pictures with this weird... You can't tell what it is until you focus and say, wait, there's a, there's a giraffe in that picture, that's 3D, because you stared at it the right way. That's what happens with this when you compare blessed definition that I just shared with you, and now take a look at the scriptures. You're going to see the scriptures come alive in a very different way, in tangible way. Anyway, that's enough for today, because, man, whoa, two minutes late. 20 if you're online. All right. See? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you bless us? Oh, wait, you have. You've already blessed us with everything we need for living a godly life. May we recognize it and wake up to that truth and let it transform our minds so we become the loving people that you are that we become the gentleness that you are. May we bear fruit of your gentleness. Even if we haven't arrived, keep working on us.